Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to The Europhile. We have a great episode today. First, we're going to discuss Ursula von der Leyen's visit to Washington, D.C. She came on Friday of last week, where the commission president met with President Biden to discuss clean energy and supply chains, as well as the war in Ukraine. I think von der Leyen's visit really reflects the increasing transatlantic unity in what has turned into a battle of attrition between Russia and the West in the energy and trade realm. Then we sit down for a talk with Aka Gogolashvili, Senior Fellow and Director of EU Studies at the Georgian Foundation for Strategic and International Studies. Our discussion covers the recently abandoned foreign influence law in Georgia, Russia's presence in Georgia, and Georgia's EU membership aspirations. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, Max, let's get started with von der Leyen's visit. From what we saw in the joint statement in their press conference afterwards and all the press that's been coming out since, it seems to me there are three main topics that came out of the conversation or were planned for the conversation. One is the climate and clean energy tech conversation. The EU is still reeling from the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the questions that arise there on potentially EU companies moving to the United States for clean tech. The second is economic coercion and national security The elephant in the room here is China, even though the two leaders didn't mention it that much in their statements. And the third one is Ukraine, both in the military uh, support that the EU and the U.S. have given Ukraine and already looking ahead to reconstruction. So why don't we get started on the climate and clean energy tech piece? To you, what was the biggest takeaway from this conversation? So I think the, the biggest takeaway here is this looks to me a bit of a turning of the page of the fight that we've had over the last six months, really, over the Inflation Reduction Act. What happened last fall when the Europeans really started to read some of the nitty gritty of the text, particularly some of the provisions that were put in at the last minute by Senator Joe Manchin, who himself admitted that didn't actually mean to exclude the Europeans from some of the provisions. The countries that we have a free trade agreement with are brought into the IRA when it comes to the sale of uh, batteries and in electric vehicles. But nonetheless, there is no free trade agreement with the EU, with the UK, and this has caused a lot of upset in Europe. And it really struck at a moment last fall where Europe was reeling with the fears of, of deindustrialization, of high energy prices. And I think what's happened is Europeans, uh, frankly, overreacted. I think some leaders instrumentalized the IRA, uh, the French in particular, I think perhaps for a, a just cause where they were pushing Europe to take stronger action themselves. But it wasn't as if French car companies are going to really be hit by this because they don't do a lot of sales in the US. But Europe basically took a breath. I think realized they somewhat overreacted. I think the Biden administration also responded very well with the White House saying, let's sit down together. And they created the EU and US created a joint task force to try to work through some of these issues. And it's still unclear exactly how much they will be able to resolve. But it seems that the US will be able to mitigate some of the, the issues of the IRA. There's a loophole where perhaps uh, leased cars could be included in the IRA and other efforts to perhaps interpret the law more broadly 
broadly. That we'll see if that withstands in court. But I think the important thing here was really the U.S. and EU were signaling that, okay, we're going to work through some of these issues. This wasn't about the United States screwing over the Europeans. The EU sort of gets that. And now we're going to sort of turn to focus on, on other issues that are of critical importance as we move toward the clean energy economy. So I think this was an important trip. I think it signals, frankly, that there's been a lot of good engagement between not just the EU and US, not just from lower level officials, but really from Ursula von der Leyen. Her chief of staff was in town a few a few weeks ago and with senior folks here in the administration. I think that's somewhat unprecedented for the US and EU to work together that closely. And I think Ursula von der Leyen coming on the tale of having the commission having published a couple new plans related to this is really the sign that Europe is taking a breath, as you were saying, like, okay, now that we're done panicking, why don't we look at what we can do? And the good thing is they have those drafts going into the conversation with this administration to say, we both have plans. Let's make sure going forward that we have a structured dialogue to align what we're trying to do, be it on supply chain, subsidies, any other aspect of the clean energy. Yeah, I think one could maybe look at the IRA, and I've been IRA promoter, but one could say, not in the, the British reduction yeah, act, not, and not, the and not in the British context, but I think you could look at it and say it's put some pressure on the Europeans who were kind of coasting along, thinking, you know, patting themselves on the back for Fit for 55 and other climate ambitions. And then suddenly the US comes in, says, we're just going to dump a ton of money on our clean energy industries and we're going to accelerate this transition. What are you going to do about it? And we're seeing some responses from the EU. So maybe you could talk uh, a little bit about what else was sort of talked about uh, when, when von der Leyen was here. I should say, I think a lot of what was agreed is to keep the dialogue going. But that's a positive sign because specifically it focused on diversifying critical minerals because that's a huge concern in terms of you know China controlling most of the supply here, uh, battery supply chains as well. So we're looking at negotiations on a critical minerals agreement. That would be one of the potential flexibilities in the law or loophole in that if some of these minerals were to come from the EU, they would be counted as accepted in U.S., let's say, electric vehicles. So we're seeing some pockets, some pockets of light here. There's also, to me, what was interesting is there's both a U.S.-EU piece and then there's a broader piece. They talked about the G7's partnership for global infrastructure and investment and pushing through that mechanism for climate and energy security investments, including in developing countries. So they're taking steps to mend the transatlantic relationship, but also build on that to then ensure that in developing countries, there's sufficient support to move toward this clean energy. So I thought that that was an interesting piece as well. And then the final one that at least resonated with me was the long ongoing dialogue that's been going on for uh, aluminum and steel. There seems to be goodwill in moving towards this global arrangement to try to fix some of the tensions that emerged primarily during the Trump administration. But this has been taking place for a longer time. So if they can reach a point where they agree on removing any kind of trade sanctions on those industries and finding alignment on how to make both of these industries sustainable in the long term. To me, that's all positive. You know, one of the major challenges of the US-EU Trade and Tech Council, which has been set up with great fanfare, is frankly working through a lot of the older issues. They've tried to put those to the side and say, okay, we're going to resolve these. But they're really hard to resolve. And I think it's one of these things when when our two unions, the EU and US, 
you know, plop out a, a, a law, a legislation like the IRA or the EU, a regulation. It's then very hard to then go to each other and say, okay, well, we have some adjustments to make after the fact. And I think what the hope here, at least when it comes to steel, is look, okay, there was tariffs. We can talk about those in greater detail, but hopefully we can get past this dispute. And then two years ago at COP in Glasgow, there was an agreement between the US and EU, which could be potentially pathbreaking, which was to create a green steel deal, essentially for the US and EU to be like, well, our steel is cleaner than China's. So we're going to put tariffs on dirty steel that is coming into our markets. Makes perfect sense because China is using coal and their their steel is uh, much more polluting that they will pay tariffs to get into our markets. And there's been hope that this will lead to somewhere, but it hasn't yet. But the idea here is that the US and EU, if they can start cooperating early on in a process, can then shape their regulations so that they're the same. It's much harder after the fact, which we're seeing with the IRA. And I think hopefully on the minerals and supply chains that will begin to have these conversations now that then will shape how the regulations and laws emerge down, down the road. There's a lot of people hoping that Rome would be built in a day here when it came to US-EU cooperation, but it's going to be much more of a slog just because we're talking about really complex issues and two complicated political bureaucracies. And that's what they're trying to do through the TTC for this new dialogue, the Clean Energy Incentives Dialogue. I find that to be a great way to use the TTC to do, as you were saying, to work to have those conversations upstream rather than everybody panic and then we try to backtrack into the dialogue. So that's, to me, that's a great, that's a great sign that yeah. they're willing to think about it ahead of time. And I also think, you know, maybe to pivot that this meeting between von der Leyen and, and, and Biden came on the heels of another meeting in Paris between President Macron and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. They recommenced the Franco-Anglo dialogue. There was sort of a regular summit that would occur between the two leaders. Hadn't occurred in a while because of the B word Brexit. In this, I think, you know, this was a real moment of uh, where, uh, speaking of turning the page, where it really looked like Rishi Sunak was trying to turn the page on the animosity that's been built up over Brexit. Uh, he came to Paris. There was joint press conferences. Really kind words were flowing back and forth. It looked like a real bromance between the two. Now, substantively, you know, Maybe not as much there. Obviously, I think Sunak has a as a political incentive to try to, I think, defang the Brexit issue, which has now become a political liability for the Tories in the UK, with most UK voters now saying that it was a mistake to leave the European Union. But at the very least, this is, you know, I think represents a good sign also coming on the heels of a joint press conference that he had and joint summit with von der Leyen and the signing of a, uh, of a new agreement over Northern Ireland. So I think we're, you know, hopefully getting out of sort of the, the death throes of Brexit, at least in terms of the animosity that's been built up between the UK and France. Let's hope so. I think Sunak also has an incentive, just a domestic incentive. When you look at channel crossing for irregular migration, he has a lot of incentives to restart a healthier dialogue with the French side. So I like putting those two summits together. It's a good, at least for European watchers, it's a feel-good moment, especially as we're having all these broader conversations about China as this looming economic threat, all the coercion that they talked about, which as I said earlier, was the elephant in the room, even though von der Leyen and Biden didn't talk about it that much in their statements. This is clearly the idea that's in the background. We're also seeing you know, China negotiating some kind of agreement or a statement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So I could understand that this is prompting some thinking on this side of the Atlantic to think, OK, we need to show a united front. And that's what that visit did. So I think that was positive. 
I'd like to turn to the last piece of what they talked about, which was Ukraine. That's obviously still on the minds of everybody else. There's also a China piece there, but the Russia piece is obviously larger. What do you think came out of this conversation? Is it mostly reinstating support or are we seeing seeing some steps forward? And I know you wrote about um, a Ukraine reconstruction. Yeah. So I had two recent pieces, one in, in foreign affairs that really highlights that, you know, if you told me a year out from the war, how much would European defense change? And I would have said a ton. It, it'll be the world will be totally different. The piece in foreign affairs is kind of a glass half empty take where there's been a lot of commitments of increased defense spending, the Zeitenwende, which we've talked about on the show. But when you look at it, the change hasn't been as transformational as you would expect. And I wrote this with Sophia Bash, a friend of the pod. And we sort of went through and said, you know, it looks a lot like the same. And when you, especially when you look at European defense procurement, where there hasn't really been a joint effort to kind of really figure out how to rebuild European militaries. Every country is sort of running off in their own direction, buying from all over the place. And while that makes sense to try to just buy off the shelf, we don't see a concerted effort to really begin to transform European defense. And part of the problem is that there's a lot of happy talk always, I think, around NATO, where it's because it's a political alliance, you want to exude strength. And that's great. But then when you look under the hood, and one of the things this war is exposing is when you look under the hood, it's actually worse than we thought when it came to European militaries. And European militaries are really divesting a ton of equipment to Ukraine. So what I hope was really talked about between von der Leyen and Biden is that there was a couple big EU initiatives last week. There was a big EU defense summit of defense ministers met in Stockholm to try to use EU funding vehicles, the European Peace Facility. This is an Estonian proposal. So it's not just, you know, the French coming up with another proposal to spend EU money. But this is an Estonian proposal for the EU to jointly buy ammunition, which then then, you know, which it looks like it's moving forward. And it also exposes the lie. I think it's a lie. I'm not an EU lawyer that I've always heard that the EU cannot buy munitions or can't buy weapons. But Frontex, the border service is doing this. I think what the EU cannot do is fund military operations. That's in the treaty. But nothing prevents the EU from actually buying weapons. And so hopefully this sort of joint European procurement, I think, is going to be really important. And hopefully von der Leyen was asking Biden to really get behind it because the other piece I had, and just to give it a quick plug, was in War on the Rocks. And it argues that providing support for Ukraine is going to get a lot harder in the U.S. system. I look at sort of my past security assistance days in the State Department, and the money is going to run out, the, the blank check that Congress was providing. And by blank, I mean the administration could give Ukraine whatever it wanted, and it was getting a check to replace that equipment. But it's really unlikely that this current Congress is going to bring forth new Ukraine supplemental spending. That means the administration is going to have to find the funding within its Pentagon budget. The good thing is that the defense spending is really high. You can reallocate lots of funding, but it's going to get trickier. And that's going to mean the European are going to have to step up more. And we're going to need more from the EU as well. But it's clear they didn't just talk about the military side. They also really talked about the economic reconstruction of Ukraine, which is really in the purview of the European Union. So what was discussed? So on reconstruction, they looked ahead at what's going to be needed, but also doing that in a way that integrates necessary reforms in Ukraine on governance and a lot of other things. I think the IMF is coming out with a plan in the spring. So the statement talked about looking ahead to this plan and hoping that it will be sufficient for the needs that they've identified. The other two things were success stories, really. One is all the efforts, the joint efforts to diversify energy sources. 
von der Leyen praised the support from the United States in terms of LNG and then the coordinated sanctions, which are going to be maintained and expanded to some extent because they're going to look to target third country actors that have been enabling circumvention and backfill for Russia's war industry. So to me, that was a really important piece. But I think that's probably a good place to leave it for the meeting between von der Leyen and Biden. This really was a timely message, especially considering all the challenges that are ongoing around the world and in particular in the European neighborhood. We saw this, for example, in Moldova over the weekend with people being arrested for attempting to cause uh, unrest in the country and then... As a great segue into our upcoming interview, really, we've seen this uh, since the end of February in Georgia. So now we'll turn over to our interview with Raja Gogolashvili, a senior fellow and director of the EU studies at the Georgian Foundation for Strategic and International Studies. Mr. Gogolashvili has served in the Georgian Foreign Service in several high diplomatic positions, including deputy head of mission to the EU and director of department for relations with the EU. He has advised the Georgian government in the past on policies related to European integration, in particular assisting the government to design and implement a lot of institutional and legal reforms that govern EU-Georgia relations. He's written a lot on EU-Georgia relations and is the editor of a lot of books dedicated to European integration. We're particularly excited to talk to Mr. Golashvili today because there's a lot happening in Georgia. And this is a country that was considered for years to be a close strategic partners to the United States and the European Union in the South Caucasus. And the reason we're keeping an eye on the country is that this democratic backsliding and some of the unrest that we're seeing there is potentially a destabilizing factor in the South Caucasus. So we hope you enjoy the interview. I was wondering if you could maybe describe the current state of play right now in Tbilisi, right now in Georgia, with the the protests that have gone on and the government's reaction. Yes, of course. The last week especially was very emotional. So many actors participated in this um, big process, which was initiated actually by the ruling force, a type of affiliate to the ruling party, uh, which is named uh, a small faction in the parliament named People's uh, Power. Actually, uh, they tried to initiate and then to to push uh, forward a type of law which was discriminatory against the civil society organizations, especially the NGOs, and the media, free media. So it was uh, presented like if if this law or uh, the draft was uh, intending to to copy an American FARA, so-called Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act, which was adopted in the U.S. in 1938, and uh, it, it served different objectives, actually. It was adopted to stand against the Nazis' Germany propaganda, by that time. And then it was modified several times. Finally, uh, I looked to FARA and uh, FARA's register and I saw there are only 700 and something, 736 organizations. Uh, imagine that United States, uh, which is uh, 100 times bigger than Georgia, or larger than Georgia uh, by population, registered only 700 uh, foreign agents in the country. And in the same time, the Georgian ruling power intended with this law to register practically uh, several thousand of uh, Georgian NGOs. 
and uh, call them foreign agents and uh, actually apply to them a special uh, treatment, special treatment which is uh, demanding from them more transparency, more publicity of their, uh, so making their all, all their activities uh, open, also put very high, uh, quite uh, substantial fines and uh, payments for, for the infringement of the rules which they established uh, by, by this law, etc. Finally, we saw that similar law, which was especially introduced to discriminate the uh, non-governmental organizations. While FARA in the United States, it applies to any kind of organization. If you look to the, to the registry in, in the United States, you see that 99% of organizations are commercial type of organizations and also some representations of political parties or special information agencies. And they are directly representing certain foreign principles. They are directly representing the principle and uh, conducting their policy and their interests. So it, it has nothing to do with uh, ordinary Georgian NGOs who just receive foreign grants. You know that Georgia is not a rich country and uh, Georgia has no such instruments to finance civil society organizations, which are crucial for democracy development in the country crucial for economic development, of uh, sectoral development. In, in any area, NGOs are very active in Georgia, and they contribute a lot in the development of the country. How they survive, how they get uh, resources to, to fund their activities, these are our foreign partners. So uh, the funding for Georgian NGOs are coming from these countries. They are not uh, serving as foreign principles for these countries. Any grant which comes from, from for example, USAID, it never demands from the organization recipient of the grant to conduct the policy which USAID follows or which USAID or US government tries to, to, to conduct in our country, right? Or, or lobby the interests of US government through USAID grants. This is absolutely unimaginable. In Russia, the same type of legislation caused practically elimination of the free media and elimination of uh, non-governmental organizations. Civil society in Georgia immediately understood the danger. And we started we started struggle in order to fight, in order to not to allow uh, the ruling party together with its affiliate, this uh, People's Power faction, uh, to pass the law. Let me just ask you, I think your, your point is, is, is right on in kind of describing the threat to democracy that this poses. You know, we have a legitimate debate in this country about where to draw the line when it comes to the Foreign Agents Registration Act and when you're acting as an agent of influence. And oftentimes those that are taking money directly to advance the interests of a foreign government tend to be in the legal sphere. But we've had it, that issue with the think tank sphere. But this could be an open discussion, except we've seen this playbook played out to your neighbor, to your north in Russia, where the foreign agents law basically served to really restrict civil society and crack down on democracy and really snuff out civil society. So my question is, is, is the intention of the current government to really follow the Russian path here to significantly restrict civil society, to roll back Georgian democracy? I mean, that, that that's why people took to the streets, but do you see that, was that sort of a mistake on their part, or are they deliberately going in a, in a non-European and more Russian-oriented direction? Yeah, absolutely. Very legitimate question. And I can tell now my position about this. It could be debatable, but I, I believe that this was especially initiated in order to restrict 
possibilities of the civil society to be critical, to have critical voice, uh, because the parliamentary elections are approaching. We have them in 2024. So the only segment which can uh, influence somehow the population in Georgia and uh, show uh, the real, real state of things in the country and explain what we really need for our future, etc. It's a civil society and it's uh, especially NGOs. Many of them are working to promote democracy in the country. Many of them are working on uh, looking to the government finances, uh, watching the uh, cases of corruption, revealing many uh, deficiencies in foreign policy issues or in administrative issues or the, how the government acts in general. So they are critical. Of course, they are critical. They have influence in this sense. So influence is growing. So they decided somehow to reduce the capacity of civil society to influence the public opinion in the country. The other, other problem, if I may add something to this, is uh, European integration. Everybody knows that Georgia tried to get candidate status in summer together with Ukraine and Georgia made an official application for uh, receiving EU candidate status. We've been denied of candidate status, but uh, we've been given a so-called European perspective, which is a special regime actually given to the country, which means that we are already in this package of enlargement countries. So this is very good progress, actually. The Georgia skipped to this package, uh, so Georgia moved to the package, and we are considered as an enlargement country. But still, we are waiting for the, this official confirmation of the candidate status. And for receiving a candidate status, we need still uh, to uh, comply with so-called 12 priorities, which you uh, communicated to us uh, last summer. Instead of trying to comply with these 12 priorities, Georgian government tries to introduce very controversial law, which is not accepted by society, which is increasing polarization in the society. The high representative for uh, security and foreign policy of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, he made a special statement saying that if this law is adopted, then Georgia will distance from its uh, past towards uh, European integration. So everything indicated that this law is not only damaging development of democracy in the country, but also is very dangerous for Georgia's advancement on the European integration path, which is totally considered by Georgian society. 80% of Georgians consider our main foreign policy priority is this uh, European integration. What we can think, if not that it was also a kind of... Uh, uh, attempt to stop Georgia's fast advancement on the European integration path. This signal could be coming from Russia to our government directly, maybe threatening them or maybe other, some other instruments used in order that Georgia makes something to stop this rapid advancement towards the European Union, which happened, we know, in 2014 with, uh, with Ukraine, when Yanukovych in one day just refused to sign association agreement. This happens with Armenia in 2014 as well, when the president of Armenia also, then prime minister, I think, of Armenia, refused uh, to sign association agreement, which was already, the text was approved and initiated already by, by parties. And uh, they turned, they made uh, the U-turn towards the Russia. Uh, so Georgian society understood very quickly this danger. And they started protesting practically all layers of Georgian society, including sportsmen or including these uh, people from uh, artists or people from uh, 
universities, epistemic society, anybody else, ordinary citizens, uh, they, they were just coming and protesting about this. Before we get to the Russian influence piece, because we definitely want to talk about this, I'm curious how you view the evolution of this government yes. to the point that we've reached, because as you pointed out, popular support in Georgia for EU accession and NATO accession is very high. The Georgian dream has for years stated that it wants Georgia to be on a path, on a Euro-Atlantic path. So how do yes. you explain how we've got here since maybe not as far back as 2008, because that seemed to have really galvanized the Euro-Atlantic path, but perhaps since 2019, when we saw the first big protests in Tbilisi, uh, how, how do you explain yeah. this shift from this current government towards a law such as this one? Well, this is really a cold question, I think, about all this. Unfortunately, it's not as easy to explain. From one side, the Georgian government was declaring the open course on this European integration and making steps. Actually, for example, Georgian civil servants that are working hard on complying with EU requirements, you know, that to join European Union is not as easy. The most difficult task, to my view, uh, apart from democratic development and democratic institutions working and being uh, functional, there is very important part that uh, you need to approximate your legislation to the European community legislation, so-called, which is 100,000 pages uh, of uh, regulations and directives, and uh, they, they penetrate every single area of, of the activities in the country in the, of your life. And it is really difficult task. And Georgian governmental bodies are working hard on this. Actually, finally, when when we checked these responses of government, uh, Georgian, uh, Ukrainian, and Moldovan uh, files about the approximation, it appeared that Georgia is uh, at the same level in approximation as Ukraine, and it's even ahead of Moldova. But uh, still, we, we were not able to get the candidate status. Why it happened? Because there was not uh, such a uh, high trust in Georgian government and ruling power that I really thinking only to uh, deepen the ties with European institutions, with European countries. But they also are playing somehow with Russia and the Russian authorities. This is a type of balancing policy which, which was very usual in uh, 19th century or in 20th century, we know that in, especially in first part of 20th century, but now for Georgia, it's absolutely not winning uh, a policy to play with two absolutely different actors with contradictive objectives and aims with very different policies in the region and towards the region. So one actor is based on values and on development on the future, and another actor is looking to the past and is based on hard power so it's very different. But but still, our government and our politicians in power, they were somehow playing with, with Russia. And that was the reason why, finally, to my view, uh, their policy was not as trusted, fully trusted from side of European Union. Because of the situation when we see that the Georgian population in its uh, overwhelming majority, 80 or 82 percent, even more, sometimes, depending on the polls, uh, they are in favor of Georgia joining the European Union. They cannot openly refuse this way. Uh, but in the same time, they have some constraints to go very fast on this way. This is seemingly a type of attempt 
to please Russia and in the same time uh, trying to convince the population that uh, we, we are not changing foreign policy priorities. It seems that Georgia and especially the Georgian government could not find this kind of courage in order to have chosen one way and supported. We have just a, a few minutes left. I'm curious for yes. your view on, on where this is all headed and wh- where do you think the situation in Georgia, how do you think it will evolve? What does this mean for the existing government? What does this mean for the pro-European part of Georgian society, which, as you mentioned, is is very large? This seems like a, a major turning point, which people will look back to and say this was sort of a moment, hopefully, that Georgia re-cemented or clarified that it wanted a European future. How do you see this moment playing out going forward? Yes, this is the moment of truth, to my view. That incident, actually, which which happened, that uh, this move to trying to introduce an anti-democratic law and uh, that could be a kind of Rubicon when Georgia could have started moving back or rolling back from the democracy. This was uh, actually overcome. And Georgian society uh, went to streets uh, and especially the young people, young generation, and I would stress the role of so-called Gen Z generation. They raised their voice, they came to the streets and they practically decided the, the destiny of this law. The government was after two days of strong protests and very, very strong demonstration of the will from side of people. The government of the ruling power, they didn't have any any choice then withdraw or uh, rec- uh, recall this uh, the, the bill. But we are not sure that they absolutely changed their policy and that now they will continue to do whatever Georgian people demand from them and what Georgian interests dictate to them. We are not sure about this. I think that it is necessary to make some serious changes that the Georgian uh, dream uh, and the the ruling power produce changes in the government and also in, in the parliament and try to come with the new faces who are not discredited because of this uh, kind of uh, participation in this kind of action, and then continue with a new policy before they come to the election. But I think that they very, very low chances now they have in order to win the next elections with this kind of very bad record, which which they deserved now with this um, action. Uh, but still, still, they have chances somehow to rehabilitate themselves. And also rehabilitation is needed against uh, the European institutions in order to, to prove that they will continue bringing Georgia to, to the European Union or uh, pushing Georgia towards EU, not towards Russia. So there is still, still a chance for this. But I'm not sure that they will use this chance as far as just uh, yesterday, Prime Minister was airing not very nice messages and again blaming some forces in Georgia and some political forces and also civil society representatives for falsifying the facts about this law, etc. There is still attempt to make reverse of the situation or to, to bring back the situation. But uh, I think that this is not possible because the young generation, especially and the big part of, uh, of society in Georgia, have already understood what is the truth, uh, and they will not allow to do this. So to close us out here, you talked about the moment of truth and crossing this Rubicon. As that happens in Georgia, what do you think the transatlantic community can do to support this 
hopefully towards the right path? Is it support to civil society? Is it support to the current government so that they can work towards rehabilitation and push back against some of this Russian influence? Is it support to the opposition? Do you think UNM can do something about this or all of the above? Yes, I think, yes, the transatlantic community already have done a lot, I would say, that they supported uh, democracy in Georgia. So far, they supported the position of the civil society of opposition of those who really want Georgia to move towards European Union. It has produced impact, I think, that not only Georgian uh, population uh, forced the government to step back, but a very strong position of, for example, U.S. State Department. Uh, every day was uh, a new new statement done by Ned Price, for example, the, the State Department speaker, and European Union representatives and very high-level politicians from different countries. They have worked uh, hard in order to show to Georgian government that they will not tolerate any attacks against democracy in Georgia and that they will... They will take measures. And I think they supported so much Georgian society in this. So we were united, actually, with our Western partners. And this is very important move. To my view, in the West, they understood and we understood that real partners, if, if, we, if they have partners in Georgia, this is civil society and also oppositional parties and the young people, population and society in general in Georgia. These are real partners. In the future, I think uh, this should be continued. The European uh, and Euro-Atlantic partners need to be very uh, alert. They should be more focused on whatever goes on in Georgia. And they need more communication with not only Georgian uh, government, but also with uh, opposition parties and with civil society. So bigger presence is necessary. We need their support against the threats which come from Russia. Because we have heard many declarations from states, Duma, from uh, the Russian propaganda leaders, uh, also even from Lavrov, uh, indicating that they are very dissatisfied with this kind of changes in Georgia, the ruling party stepping back in this question. And they directly indicated that even maybe the brutal force can be used, uh, employed against Georgia, if Georgia continues its uh, move, uh, fast move towards uh, European Union and Euro-Atlantic community. Of course, we need more strongest signals from side of Euro-Atlantic community, from United States, especially to Russia, saying that uh, we, as Georgia as a nation, we also have strong uh, support from U.S. Uh, and uh, we can count on this uh, support in case if Russia decides to, to use force against us. Well. Mr. Golashvili, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on the Eurofile. Thank you so much for, for joining us and, and best of luck to, to you and to, and to everyone in Georgia. Thank you very much. Pleasure was mine and all the success to you. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also look out for an upcoming critical questions from the program on Georgia's foreign agents law. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sissy Martinez and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time. 